This episode is sponsored by A-List. A-List is an innovative educational services provider made up of passionate educators dedicated to helping students from all backgrounds achieve their academic goals and successfully prepare for their educational futures. From standardized test prep for the SAT and ACT to professional development, data analytics, and AI learning platforms, A-List annually serves more than 80,000 students across the U.S. and via its international offices in London, Dubai, and Shanghai. Now, I happen to know one of the founders, and he is exceptionally passionate about education and building a brighter future for the students he works with. And I think this ethos has permeated the entire corporation. Check out their website at alisteducation.com. On this episode, we have Dean Bergonier. Dean's family history includes a prominent whaling ancestor from Nantucket Island and an uncle who presented the credentials of the Kingdom of Thailand, called Siam at the time, to a tribunal at The Hague in the Netherlands. Dean was diagnosed with dyslexia in the third grade, thanks to a mother who was an education professional and was able to provide supportive services at a young age. After spending a number of years visiting Southeast Asia regularly and enjoying commercial success launching a number of business enterprises, Dean founded Noticeability to help those diagnosed with dyslexia benefit from non-text-based learning modalities. He is married to Sally Taylor, the daughter of Carly Simon and James Taylor. Dean, thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, thanks for having me, man. This is exciting. I'm really excited to have you on. It, you've done some amazing work with a number of people who have been on the show already, with uh, who have identified as being uh, dyslexic, and um, others now, because of that, have come forth and said, you know, I might be too, but I've never been tested. But a lot of that resonated with me. And so I really appreciate the generosity of your, uh, uh, I mean, I reached out to you and you promoted or shared with your group um, some of the things, uh, the content we were able to be able to come up with. And would really look forward to that continuing because I feel like this becomes like, uh, it feeds it off of itself and more and more people hear about it and, and come forth. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about that as a, as a possibility. Oh, look, I thank you for, for, you know, for, for promoting the cause. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting one, right? Because we are invisible to each other and therefore it's harder for us to identify how many of us are in the world, but you know, this, uh, podcasts, um, different interviews, different, more importantly, people's willingness to speak openly about being dyslexic starts to tear down that, that, that sense of isolation, which I think is one of the, probably the most uh, troublesome aspects of having dyslexia is the, is the false belief that you're alone. Yeah, no, so true. Now, were you born in uh, New England or Massachusetts specifically? I was born in New York. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, believe it or not, I was, uh, I was the first baby born in history, apparently, to something called the 79th Street Boat Basin, which is on the Hudson mm -hmm. River. So I lived on a boat for the first two and a half years of my life, which That's uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think I think it you know messed with some of my principal understanding of physics, right? Like you put a rattle down and it just rolls away. Like that's not how it works for everybody else. But uh, oh, you know, that. it it it, it uh, my old man was a salty dog, and and that was his solution to living in New York was to be on a boat where we could escape on weekends. So gotcha. yeah, no, I grew up in Westchester County. Yeah, okay, all right, the city. And then uh, you did uh, your schooling in Westchester County. I did up until uh, and up until my sophomore year in high school, and I moved to Boston with my mother and okay. went to a private day school outside of outside of Boston. Gotcha. Uh, and then and then yeah, and then having gotten a taste of, of proper New England, headed further north, uh, up to to Bates College Bates up in College, Maine. Right. Yeah. Nice, nice. So. Now, um, was your dyslexia discovered early? It was, you know, I, I'm I'm 47 years old. That's a 1973 baby. That's uh, that's a, I was diagnosed in I think about third grade, is what my mother recalls. Um, she laments the fact that she waited as long as she did. I I, I applaud her for being so progressive. That yeah. was that was really kind of unheard of in that yeah. in that age range or you know during that time. That's but right. it was in large part because my mother was a child development 
psychologist, excuse me, my mother is a child developmental psychologist. Mm-hmm. My father, now deceased, was a diagnosed dyslexic. So there was a, uh, an ample amount of where, awareness at home, right. which is, as, as we both know, that is a huge part of the puzzle. Absolutely. Having that advocacy with you is, is so critical. Um, but I understand what you mean. Like, um, I'm, I'm a 77 baby. So this was a similar time frame, the 80s and early 90s going through our, our schooling. Um, it wasn't talked about. It wasn't identified. There were not, I can't recall any supportive um, uh, structures um, to, to assist. And um, your TED talk was brilliant when it talked about the, one of the biggest flaws in our education system post-industrial revolution where um, the, the system's really designed to just be completely text-based and um, that, that leaves out a fair amount of, uh, of people uh, in terms of their ability to, to grasp concepts. Yeah, it is. It, it, uh, it's, it's an unfortunate legacy um that supports a very antiquated system right it's uh you know if 80 percent plus or minus of the population um responds positively to text-based learning why would you change it and i think you know as we are getting uh more focused on what uh, personalized education looks like and the needs of each individual student we realize uh i'm trying to take an optimistic spin on this, we realize that we can actually uh, incorporate the learning styles regardless of the individual and no longer go, you know, 80-20, but we can actually shoot for something much higher in terms of engaging all students. So that's my hope. But again, that's, that's an optimistic spin on it. It's not what the reality of education looks like today, unfortunately. No, but without your efforts, it would go nowhere. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it requires this kind of effort, this kind of work. And uh, I feel uniquely uh, positioned to be able to empathize with this, given my son's situation. Um, you know, he, both of my children do fencing. And um, I've had to tell every fencing coach he's had, like, you can't explain it to him verbally. He's not going to get it. You have to demo. As soon as you demo the move, he'll, he'll reenact it because just processing wise auditorily is a struggle for him and uh and they work with him so just this idea that we need to have different modes of being able to learn and grasp concepts i'm really fully behind (laughs) yeah yeah no but and it's also it's also you know it's interesting i mean like when you show up on day one of a job right sure there's some reading associated with that but there's also a lot of, okay, this person's gonna show you the ropes. So you sit down they say, okay, this is how we do it. And you're looking over their shoulder, you're observing what they do and how they do it. And that is a very innate learning style, obviously for dyslexics, but it's also something that is, is very much uh, the cornerstone of the way industry works, you know, both historic and present day. Um, I'm also recognizing this very, uh, heightened demand for that interpersonal collaboration right that is you know going to be the lifeblood of the 21st century economy and what we need to do is recognize that you know people with dyslexia neurodiverse individuals um, have i think an innate ability to communicate in alternative modalities may that be through expression or through you know uh, you know verbal expression or physical expression and so what we actually can look at that as a as an opportunity to harness that strength and yeah. to and, and and to queue it up for for a future um, you know member of the workforce. Amazing! I really love that phrase you just used, neurodiverse. Yeah, I'm going to start throwing that around. I'll ascribe it to you. <laughs> it's, you know, you don't. You know, thank you. I appreciate it. And 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 no, you know, you know, it's it's. I think it's a it's a it's a really good. Um, it's a really good term. It's not, it's certainly not something that I came up with, but I think it's starting to encompass individuals that learn differently than, you know, the, the sort of standard, you know, one size fits all methodology. And so, you know, we are now recognizing again in the 21st century workplace, and you're in California, I mean, you're in the hotbed of this, right? Is that those who have um, certain 
cognitive advantages uh, are sought after in the industry. I mean, I, you know, one of my greatest inspirations is a gentleman I've never met. He's from Belgium and he noticed that his son with autism had this incredible propensity to do highly detailed repetitive work. And so recognizing that he wanted his son to, to, to be able to live a semi-autonomous autonomous lifestyle, eventually he went to some of his friends in the telecommunication industry and said, look, I know every time you launch a, a smartphone app, you've got a bunch of coders in a dark room trying to stress test it before you before you go public. Well, my boy can stress test for eight, 10 hours a day, and he's not going to ask you for a break. He's not going to ask you to go out and you know walk. He is focused. And so what this gentleman has essentially done is created a consulting firm in Belgium and now in the United States of individuals with autism who are paid market or well above market rates because what they do is so much better than everybody else in this particular category. And that's the beauty of neurodiversity. Dyslexics, I think we bring a very significant value add as well. But when you start to look at all of these, um, these, these different learning profiles and you start to spin it in a way of looking at the glass half full or shameless plug, if you start to notice ability, you see no disability, right? It's just a perspective shift. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That was a shameless plug. Thank oh, you. That, yeah, well that. done. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Weaved uh, it in. Yeah. Yeah, nicely done. We're all integrated. Um, uh, your, sh- your story about your Belgian friend, um, that made me emotional. That's really phenomenal. I love what he, what he did there. Uh, and kudos to him. That's, that's, that's amazing. Um, pass it along if I ever get the benefit of meeting him. Yeah. 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 By all means. Um, so, uh, I noticed there was a nickname or not nickname, but middle name Starbuck. Yeah. Was that from you? (laughs) Salty dad? (laughs) That's right. That's right. No, I do not. I'm not the heir to a coffee empire. Uh, I, I actually, um, the, the name of the coffee company was taken from Herman Melville's Moby Dick and the name of the first mate was Starbuck. Melville actually based that on my ancestors who were the, 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 the white settlers of Nantucket Island, the whaling family. Oh, wow. And so what, you know, Melville copped the name, Starbucks got it. I get nothing. I pay full fare at every Starbucks I go to, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, I do take a lot of pride in that legacy. Um, it's, uh, it's an old uh, whaling tradition, obviously whaling uh, no longer something that I would advocate for. But there is a uh, sort of a, um, a pioneering maritime spirit that I take a lot of pride in. Yeah, no, for sure. And it's funny how history repeats itself vis-a-vis your son's name and the company I started, which has nearly, not nearly the footprint that uh, Starbucks has. (laughs) May we we both be so lucky. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Um, But this theme uh, comes up again. But before we get to um, um, uh, Nantucket Sound, I want to ask you about um, at Bates College, your study of uh, religion, philosophy of religion, um, and, and identifying as a Buddhist, um, uh, like what was the motivator there? How did that come about? You know, I, I, I was always, I was, I was not brought up under a particular religious influence. My uh, mother was Episcopalian. I think my father sort of verged on, on atheism, but I always felt an innate sense of spirituality. And what I always kind of longed for, and I suppose this also relates to my dyslexic journey, is I wanted to be a member of a community, right? Mm-hmm. I know that so many people actually, um, uh, there's a certain level of resentment by having to be brought up in a religious community. I had the opposite. I wanted to be a part. So when I when I went to Bates, and, and, and the most amazing thing is right after after 12 years of, 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 you know, education where I was taught to, to, to keep my mind or to force my mind inside the box. Now, all of a sudden, Bates was saying, well, you try that here and you're going to fail out. You got to go outside the box. I was, oh, my gosh, that's my wheelhouse. I can do that. Right. And so the opportunity to study religion was like mind blowing to me. And so I started to delve into different religions and loved Hinduism, loved Hinduism. Um, when I stumbled upon Buddhism, it 
it created uh, it created an explanation for both the root of our suffering as individuals, as well as the opportunity to address it and potentially, um, you know, uh, emancipate ourselves. Um, and and it's so rudimentary in its understanding, but so profoundly difficult to comprehend. And and so I thought to myself, wow, this is this is science fascinating. So. I had the the benefit of, of of starting to travel Southeast Asia, where, you know, it's one thing to learn about a philosophy; it's another thing to witness how it is, you know, penetrated virtually every aspect of of a society. And this was post college you know, with the Tranquility Project. Yeah, yeah, it was actually. Thank you for doing such thorough research. <laughs> it was actually just after college, yeah. and. Um, and and you know to to be frank, I I'd gotten so deep into Buddhist philosophy that I almost felt uh, alienated from the people I was going to school with because in America, obviously, it's 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 a totally different ethos. Mm-hmm. The moment I stepped off that plane and it was Bangkok that I arrived in first, and you know was surrounded by these monasteries and by these saffron-robed monks and white-robed nuns walking around i was like this feels like home to me right and and you know they call us parang which is is sort of a you know kind of a humorous derogatory term for for white travelers um you know all all of a sudden they see me going into into temples into monasteries into watts and all of a sudden i'm doing all the rituals that they do and talk about opening a door to a culture now all of a sudden you know some monk is like you know you're coming with me we got to check you out you know and all of a sudden we're hanging out you know and i'm breaking bread with the monks like this is this is National Geographic style, you know, <laughs> and so, um, I so, so I continue to, as, as best I can, I continue to feed my Buddhist philosophy despite living in, in the West, which is, uh, which makes it challenging at times. Yeah, no, no, I can completely identify. Um, my wife is actually a Singaporean, and so we spent a fair yeah. amount of time in Southeast Asia. Uh, we have a home there, and the kids go back every uh, summer, and so they really experience it. In our, our recent trip, we were in Bangkok. It was a, just a, a brilliant experience. Um, I, I love going back. <laughs> Bangkok is so awesome. Most people get off the plane, they're like, this is congested and polluted and overwhelming. And it is all those things. But once you start to, you know, peel back the layers, Bangkok is a fascinating city. I mean, it is so rich and deep. And just to think that 100 years ago, every street you're walking on was a canal. Yeah, right. They they call it the, the, you know, the Venice of of Asia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's extraordinary. Extraordinary. How did the uh, Tranquility Project come about? What was the decision to to join that? You just you wanted to be in Southeast Asia? Yeah. Well, no. I yes and no. I I you know I was I I I threw my hat into the small business entrepreneurship ring right out of college because with a philosophy of religion degree, right? There's not a lot of uh, job opportunities. So, you know, I, 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 I decided to do something absolutely inadvisable, and I actually bought this small restaurant on Martha's Vineyard Island where I wanted to teach myself business, uh, which, I, which I did. I mean, I took a, a lot of, um, you know, hard knocks in the beginning. Uh, I had, you know, ramen noodle would have been a challenge for me to make before I bought this thing. So I, like, didn't know what I was doing, but eventually got um, pretty good at it and, and had a nice exit from it. But, you know, I was headed to Southeast Asia full time. I was not to get too long winded, but the a great uncle of mine, a great great uncle of mine, um, presented the constitution on behalf of the Kingdom of Siam to the Hague, and essentially ensured that the monarchy would remain in power regardless of any western colonization attempts and it is the longest reigning monarchy in, in yes in yeah. history it has not been and so, it's an amazing story it's a it's extraordinary and and so so all of a sudden what happened what you do back then is is the you know the thai royal family would have you know various you know 
recognized offspring and they started coming to the United States to live with my family. And so when I all of a sudden, like my mother grew up with the, the cousin of the king and, uh, you know, in Washington, D.C., right? And so now all of a sudden I have this philosophy of religion degree. I started traveling Southeast Asia on second or third trip. I don't remember how many it was. I eventually met him. And it was like these two kindred spirits because here was a Western mind who had gone sort of off the deep end in terms of East Asian philosophy or Asian philosophy. And now all of a sudden here was this Thai royal who had been reared in the West, gone to Dartmouth, gone to Harvard, and was clearly Thai. And so the two of us had this like identity struggle that we could relate to. And he's, you know, he's 40 years older than I am. But I eventually would spend every winter in Southeast Asia, about three months a year, and just backpacking, doing what I did. Well, eventually I was going to move to Thailand after I sold my restaurant to work for him. He's in the big hospitality guy in, in Thailand. That's right. And lo and behold, I met this beautiful, curly blonde haired woman <laughs> who stole my heart. And I decided to go for love instead of Thailand. I wound up, you know, falling in love with my now wife, Sally. But when I wanted to really, really uh, impress her, um, I, I decided I was going to propose. But, you know, you don't want to miss the boat on that one, right? So I told her we we're going to Hawaii. I actually packed her passport. We went to Thailand. We found ourselves in Cambodia at Angkor Wat. Wow. Uh, and oh. I proposed to her. That's I'm sorry, this is such a long-winded, there's just a little, one last chapter. I apologize for being so long-winded. No need to apologize. This is a great story. <laughs> Be careful what you ask, right? Um, so, so, so she says, yes, thank God. She fell for it, right? The, you know, the monastery and the monks and everything. He's like, thank God, right? Because it's the beginning of the trip. And then we go about three days later, to a demining operation, landmine operation that was uh, run by a gentleman who was forced labor in the Khmer Rouge and had become a landmine expert. And when the wars ended in the mid to late 90s, he decided he wanted to go and demine as many as he had planted. And so we went to his operation and there was this book that showed different pictures of him in the field doing what he did. And there was this one picture, I remember it distinctly, this beautiful little Khmer girl, right? And one of her legs was completely missing. And on the back, it had somebody had written in very broken English, this girl will never be married because of her landmine accident. And so my wife turned to me and, and she's a very, very empathetic soul and she's got tears streaming down her face and she says, what are we going to do about this? And so I said, well, let's do something. And so we started a 501c3 that would generate funds in the United States to then support operations that were demining Amazing. Southeast Asian soil and re rehabilitating human and indigenous wildlife. Wow. So that was the Tranquility Project. That's fantastic. Amazing. Yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a wonderful chapter. It's hard work, though, when you oh, see yeah. what these things do. It's yeah. horrifying. Well, it's like your first foray into social entrepreneurship, which has been a recurrent theme. Um, it was. The one thing that always amazes me about the story of Thai Thailand never falling to colonial rule was how, um, I forget, somehow the French were victorious in a war, and it might have been a skirmish against the English as well. And um, so they, they very arrogantly said to the Thai kings uh, that um, they came up with some obnoxious price. It's like, yeah, we won, so you can pay us like two million whatever. Um, or we, we take over, we, you colonize you. And the, the Thai king said, okay, here's the money. <laughs> and so the, the French were like, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, damn it, man. I was hoping you would say, you know, I love it. I love it. Uh, Thai, Thailand is such an extraordinary culture. It's such an extraordinary culture and so 
rightfully so proud at their autonomy and independence. Yeah, agreed. That's completely really agreed. mind-blowing. Love spending time there. Um, your next endeavor was Tickets for Charity. Yeah. Yeah, that was, unfortunately, that was, I, I, I was, I was just, I was a cog in that wheel, but it was a very noble endeavor. It was, the idea was that the secondary market, which is, it was populated by scalpers and, and ticket brokers, um, demonstrated that there was inherent value that wasn't being realized by either the artist or, or by the consumer was paying for it. And what Tickets for Charity was designed to do was capture that secondary market value and redirect it to charitable causes. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, brilliant, uh, brilliant concept. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the, the company, as I said, did not succeed. But, um, but you know, as, as the the emergence of, of socially responsible businesses and, and you know, the advent of the social entrepreneur, I think is, is going to start to slowly chip away at some of those secondary markets that are just being gobbled up by, um, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not calling anybody, you know, anything, you know, less than somebody trying to make their way. But if you can capture that for charity, uh, I think everybody's going to benefit. So there's, there's a lot available. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you continued with your, um, social responsibility work. Um, uh, well, I just noticed two other, um, sort of, uh, endeavors before you launched, uh, noticeability bite tech and partners for youth with disabilities. Can yeah, you just share yeah. a little bit about those? Sure, Bytech is this extraordinary company that uh, based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and it was actually created by a dyslexic, not surprisingly. And what he had done, he had he had been one of the creative minds behind something called Shock Doctor, which is the most you know ubiquitous um, uh, mouthpiece device in the market. What he recognized after he sold it and during his non-compete was that. Um, there was a, an optimal positioning of the jaw, specifically targeting the temporal mandibular joint, and that what happens when people are exercising and exerting a high intensity, what they tend to do is clench, clench their, their, their jaw, right? You can see Schwarzenegger doing his lifts, his jaw is always clenched. Well, the idea is that, that the condyle and temporal mandibular joint gets compressed and subsequently there's a, there's a sort of a, a series of little veins and arteries that run through that, that TMJ. And you, by compressing the condyle, a condyle, you're essentially squeezing off that inherent blood flow that's supposed to happen. And what they discovered was that if you can insert an artificial separator ultimately in the form of a mouthpiece uh, that would allow the jaw to keep that space in the TMJ that it actually translated to certain percentage increases in strength, endurance, accuracy, reduction in, in heart rate, as well as a reduction in cortisol secretion. Amazing. So brilliant, brilliant concept. You say, well, that sounds a little bit like, uh, you know, questionable, right? Except for the fact that Native American women had always put a piece of leather between their teeth when they were giving birth. Uh, Greek legionnaires, excuse me, vice versa. They would put a stick in between their, ter their teeth when they were giving birth. Greek legionnaires would put a piece of leather behind them, right? The whole idea of biting the bullet why does it allow that jaw positioning to actually accentuate these physical assets? It's because of that, that temporal mandibular joint, the positioning of the condyle. So brilliant concept, it's still on the market. It's now an Under Armour licensed product. Okay. Uh, the problem with the product, I think, is that, you know, you're going into like, you know, you know Dick's Sporting Good and it's there with everything else. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's not somebody there who's able to explain everything I just explained yeah. to you. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so if you're looking for an investment, uh, <laughs> you seem to do well with your ventures, snap <laughs> us up, would you? So, well, I, yeah. I wonder if they can address sleep apnea. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if that's a specific claim that they're after, but what's, what's interesting is has myriad different applications uh, from, you know, obviously childbirth, 
to military applications. And then I would imagine that there's a positive impact on, on, on sleep apnea as well. Yeah. Lord knows I could use it in that regard too. Right. <laughs> I may adjust it slightly because I hear it's about jaw positioning and your ability to breathe. Um, yeah. So that, that's interesting. Wow, great. Yeah. And then uh, Partners for Youth with Disabilities? Yeah, another extraordinary organization, Boston-based, uh, you know, essentially uh, creating mentorship programs for people with a broad range of disabilities, uh, physical, developmental, um, uh, uh, neurological, et cetera. And it was, uh, you know, based on the premise that those that have, uh, you know, sort of been in your shoes can help you um, navigate your 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 course uh, as as a youth with similar challenges and I was attracted to that obviously um, you know because dyslexia fell underneath that umbrella um, and it's an extraordinary program really great organization going going strong um, definitely something that I would I would support people to look at nice great so Dean when did you have the inspiration for noticeability you know, the true inspiration came when when my son Bodhi was born. Mm. You know, it's it's like you know, you know, as as an expectant mother father, right? You see this, you know, this rosy colored world that you're going to bring your child into, and then he or she arrives, and you're holding them in your arms, and you realize if you're in the case like my wife and me, who are both dyslexic that we've just, or she's just given birth to this little purebred dyslexic, right? And that's fantastic when you're 22 years old and older. But we realized, or I realized at that moment that I was going to have to shepherd this child through 12 plus years of academics that were, academia that was going to potentially do what it did to both my wife and to me. And how was I going to address the systemic error? And how was I going to avoid being complicit in sending him into an environment that I thought was going to have detrimental impacts? So I had, uh, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, home of Harvard and MIT, and just being a Cambridge resident, you. You know, you, you, you get bored with, you know, oh, okay, you're another professor and, you know, quantum physics, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's a professor, right? So you get to know everybody, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I thought to myself, you know, as a young entrepreneur, what I had found a particular value was that my dyslexia gave me a very competitive advantage in the restaurant business, uh, evidenced only by the fact that, you know, 60% of people that actually know what they're doing fail in the first three years. And I didn't, and I would not have been able to do that had I not been dyslexic. And we can go down that rabbit hole as to why if you want. But what I discovered was that there, I found a genuine sense of purpose and self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Nobody was, the, the, the proof in what I was capable of came at the end of the day in the till. And if that till was full, I was doing well. And so there was this wonderful cause and effect. And so as anybody in business is trying to stay competitive, trying to get an edge, trying to do as well as they can. And I recognized that I, my ignorance was slowly displaced by success. Uh, you know, not, not Bill Gates' success, but for me, that small business entrepreneurial experience was incredibly valid. But at the exact same time as Bodhi was born, give or take a couple of years, I was speaking with the head of something called Lab School, which is down in DC, sort of the gold standard of dyslexic specific and learning differences school in DC. And she gave me this copy of the Dyslexic Advantage, which is a book written by a pair of neuropsychologists in Seattle, who have gone through hundreds, if not thousands, probably more like about five or 10,000 interviews or clinical work with dyslexics. And they had created a portfolio 
of dyslexic assets that accompany our unique brain construction. And further, what they did is they showed how those assets applied to certain professional paths and how we were disproportionately successful in those ventures. And so the light bulb went off. Here's an opportunity to introduce middle school students to the neuroscientific, uh, neuroscientific advantages now being discovered that are associated with dyslexia, plus the professional paths that we find success in. And then lastly, sort of marinating in that Cambridge, Massachusetts ethos, this idea of social emotional learning, which is edu-speak for learning how to operate in teams, how to self-regulate so that you can overcome conflict, that you can negotiate, that you can engage in active listening as well as, 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 as giving input. And those three circles in my mind started to overlap and what there was was an opportunity to create enrichment curricula for students like my son who would get beaten up by the educational process, specifically the reading remediation process, but we could throw them this lifeline of enabling them to take a class where they could not ignore what they do better than most. And from that, because the cognitive dissonance between, oh, I've got this disability or I've got these strengths, it can't exist in one human brain successfully. One has to gobble up the other. And my hope is that that newfound sense of self and purpose would start to slowly erode the self-doubt and the insecurity and self-loathing that is often the case for most dyslexics. Amazing. So, yeah. I was just gonna, and the only, the, the tool to combat that is what you experienced when you ran your restaurant. It's because you're not getting any praise in the traditional school system. And so to be getting praise for what you can do and your ability is mind blowing and really just eye opening for a child or a student going through that. It's, it's so eye opening. It's so needed. And, and one of the things that I will share is something called the 700 club, which the authors of the dyslexic advantage write about. These are, Fortune 500 CEOs, these are global entrepreneurs, all of whom scored a cumulative 700 or less on their SATs. And the author said to these incredible dyslexics, with all due respect, how on earth did you go from this, what seemed like a preordained path to becoming who you have today? And each and every one of them this is the most consistent message across the entire book and all of the interviews was each and every one of them could tell you with vivid recollection, time of day, sunlight, what the person was wearing when they stopped and said, Oh, you're pretty good at that. Wow. Well, you're, you're, you're pretty good illustrator. Oh, you really crushed it with that lawn mowing service that you created. And for these individuals that were so ravenous for positive affirmation, that little kernel is literally what changed the trajectory of their lives. And so I thought to myself, if we could, I mean, look, some of us have the benefit of having supportive parents, supportive educators, maybe a coach or an aunt or uncle, maybe they are going to provide us with that 700 club moment. But the vast majority of us may not have that. Yeah. So could noticeability create a systemic opportunity for those individuals to flip the switch themselves? And if they do, there's no turning off that switch. You cannot go from being told either explicitly or implicitly that you are dumb and worthless to discovering that you are good at something and then revert back to mm -hmm feeling you're dumb or useless. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, how old is Bodie now? He's 12. Okay. He's 12. My and son is just, 12 too. Uh, 2008 were they born? He was 2007, 10-4. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. 
But the irony is he just took my class. He just took my class. That's right. He's just because, finished sixth grade. Yeah. So <laughs> because of this whole, this whole, you know, COVID-19, oh, uh, yeah. he was able to take my class. Yeah. And ironically, the, you know, he, he took our entrepreneurship class. We've got three classes. He took our entrepreneurship class. He was working with uh, two other students, one located in Sweden, the other one in Germany. And the three of them came up with a business plan for a product that I, I literally cannot speak about because we have to lock up IP on this thing before <laughs> I speak about it. That's how serious I am. Fantastic. Well, kudos. That's really amazing. Yeah, That's but cool. I'll send you one when it's done. How about that? Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Deal. <laughs> we'll give you we'll give you an option on round A. That's great. Okay. Um, yeah. And these these neuroscientists out of Seattle who did all these amazing interviews, they're the ones who developed the statistics that um, thirty five percent of entrepreneurs are dyslexic, forty uh, percent of self made millionaires are dyslexic, and so forth. Yeah. They they uh, they have included some of those statistics, some of those from other sources. I can share those with you if you're interested. But uh, there's a lot of there's a lot more encouraging statistics emerging. Well, encouraging is a is a, is an oxymoron because the statistics that are emerging now, which are irrefutable, are statistics on incarceration and people uh, yeah. with dyslexia. And so right now, yeah. uh, substance abuse, um, I saw that with adolescents, there's a lot of disturbing data there. Yeah. 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 I, at some point, the research money will, 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 I hope, eventually start going to the correlation between, uh, you know, dyslexia, its strengths and subsequent yeah. success in certain categories. There's not a lot out there. That's why um, that's it why comes those, back. Those, Right, no, no, that makes complete sense. And it comes back to engagement and boredom. If your child's not engaged, um, they will find other ways to deploy their intellect, especially when it's they have these superpowers in these other areas. And so, yeah. you know, uh, unfortunately, substance abuse, crime, those things are the ones that, uh, that come up. But uh, if we can augment totally. our education system to engage them and show them that there is a path and there is a way for them, that can help uh, mitigate that. So uh, to, to access your curriculum, uh, does one go online or is it offered through schools? Well, that's a great question. And, and you know, traditionally, prior to the pandemic, um, the way we would deliver our curriculum is we would work with schools and then schools would deliver the content. So we're, we are what what is called a hybrid delivery, meaning that all of the content of entrepreneurship or engineering or architecture or the arts, which are the four categories that we, uh, the four professions that we teach, where just obviously dyslexics are disproportionately successful. We teach all of those online. And the reason why is because it provides us with access to different modalities of teaching. It's not a textbook. It's audio it's video it's visual graphics and infographics that is a very organic way for dyslexics to learn so you've eliminated that barrier to learning by taking text out of the equation it does not mean caveat does not mean that dyslexics don't have to learn how to read they do right. but to be able to give a moment of reprieve from that arduous journey of having to decipher coding essentially That's to get right. behind it to see what the meaning is we give them a break then what we ask is the teachers in the classroom who have been trained by us create the project-based component in in their in their rooms and so those project-based components mm -hmm. allow students to sort of rub up against each other's sharp elbows which enables them to then use that social emotional learning that we've taught them earlier in the class. So that was the way it was. Yeah. Now the new way, because I'm not a you know, you know, first responder, I, I I can't be, you know, emulating these heroes that are doing this incredible work. But what I can do is recognize the fact that there is either the potential for students with dyslexia who are at home to have what you know what we refer to as summer slide but you know academic regression because they're not in school right. or more optimistically 
they're not in school, which means that they are receptive and really attuned to getting this positive messaging where we don't have to worry about it being clogged or, or, or you know, sort of muddled by the negative affirmation that they get on a daily basis. So what we started to do was we, we have a large network of volunteer facilitators that we have trained through scholarships that we've given. Well, we then went back and said, hey, would you mind helping us to replicate the in-classroom component, but through Zoom? And what we will do is we will give you three or four students and you'll meet twice a week where that project-based learning will happen. And we were skeptical. Zoom, I, I don't know, a bunch of talking torsos and bobbling heads. Like, that's difficult, right? Our kids going to be able to bond over that format, especially if they've never met each other. And would these facilitators be able to do the magic that happens in the classroom? Well, I'm happy to say that it absolutely has been one of the most tremendous successes of our young history here. And it likely will be the delivery model that we pivot towards majoritably. And the beautiful thing, and I'm going to stop talking, but the beautiful thing about this is that as anybody who is living in the United States or is alive in the world for that matter can attest the United States in particular is horrendously divided by gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic. And what's amazing is that we've had kids, families expressed interest in this free offering. We did it as a free offering. We had some funding from a donor, free offering. We have, I think we've got we've worked with about 50 kids over the last couple of months. Wow. We've got kids all over the United States, bar none. We've got tons of kids from Canada. We've got kids from Zimbabwe, Germany, and Sweden. And they're all coming together. I make these little three, four-person teams. Bring them together. Now, beyond those geographical differences, there's public school kids, private school kids, mm-hmm. homeschool kids. And then even a deeper layer is there's a myriad of different gender, ethnicity, and socioeconomic components that go into each one of those kids' lives. And this square or rectangle by Zoom eliminates all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Can't eliminate gender differences. Those things are apparent, but it erases the divides that would prevent these kids in normal conditions for meeting. And what's amazing is that they get along like gangbusters. We've got first generation Americans working with kids. I know their kids are going to these elite 60,000 a year plus private LD schools, learning differences schools, and they're all coming together. And there's no difference because they come with the commonality of dyslexia. And it's like, it's like eye-watering, goosebump-evoking stuff to watch. Amazing. <laughs> Sorry, do I seem passionate? I apologize. <laughs> I get a little fired I, up about you this. You apologize. I love that. It came through loud and clear, which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, Dean, where would you like to take noticeability? What's your vision? Well. That's, that's a great question. I mean, you know, my, my sort of facetious response, but not really is, you know, global domination by mm-hmm. dyslexics, um, but uh, <laughs> facetious to the extent, but I, I will say that some of the greatest change agents in the entire history of humankind have been dyslexic from Henry Ford to Einstein to JFK mm-hmm. to Winston Churchill. So last time I looked at the news, we got a lot of problems. We <laughs> deserve to unlock the potential of these kids so they can help us solve them. Um, so, so what I really want to do is as I talk about bringing those kids together under a common uh, banner of shared challenge as well as, um, as aspiration and inspiration, I want to think of how we can harness this this community in a more cohesive way Mm. because the most the most shocking 
compelling and sad theme that I hear from every single student and every single parent of a child with dyslexia is that they believe they are alone in this journey. Yeah. And with arguably 15 to 20% of the global population having dyslexia, yeah. nothing could be further than yeah. the truth. That's right. So enabling, using online learning, using video conferencing like Zoom to bring these kids together so they can see each other and coincidentally learn like, excuse me, where's Alberta? Is that in the United States? I've never heard of that. Oh, Canada, right? Everyone's learning about where each other's from. That's cool too, right? If we can harness this community and more importantly, have these kids go out. And this is one of my closing messages. At the end of one of our, every one of our classes is, look, you now understand how powerful your dyslexia is. When you become a success in life, which you will, please articulate the correlation between who you are and your dyslexia because only that will start to tear down this misconception that we're just dumb kids because we can't read. Nothing could be further from the truth. So that is my dream. That is my dream is is to reduce stigma is to increase levels of camaraderie and community, and more importantly, to unleash this asset, which unfortunately is currently, for the most part, atrophying behind bars or in drug and alcohol rehabilitation centers, unleash this potential onto a world that desperately needs change agents and innovative thinkers. I think we'll all be better off for it. I I honestly do. 100%, Dean. It's a phenomenal mission that you're on. Uh, I wish you all the possible success. I really just, I love what you're doing. It's really extraordinary. I think Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It really means a lot to me. And, 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 and tell your boy that I'm thinking of him. And, Thank you, Dean. I appreciate I'm so glad that he is healthy and well. And uh, I, I will be sure not to bring my lightsaber when I meet him. <laughs> he'll fence me into a corner so well yeah. you know, we're ho- hoping for better times we can bring both of our boys together i mean uh, being yeah. the same age i think they would enjoy that ex- uh, extremely well uh, enjoy that a lot so dean thank you so much like nothing more achieve is recorded at subtractive and hangar eight at the santa monica airport music is produced by hennity